Space, the final frontier. This is the Observer's Notebook, the official podcast of the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers. Its mission to explore the solar system, to seek out new observations and data, to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. And now the host of the Observer's Notebook, Tim Robertson. Hello and welcome to episode 171 of the Observer's Notebook, the official podcast of the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers. I am Tim Robertson, the host of the podcast and also the coordinator of the training program in the ALPO. Thanks for downloading. Thanks for listening. The ALPO collects and analyzes observations of various solar system bodies and associated phenomena and publishes detailed reports concerning these bodies in its quarterly publication, the Journal of the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers, known as the Strolling Astronomer. This podcast depends upon donations from you, our listeners, to keep it going. If you enjoy what you hear on the podcast, you can subscribe by donating as little as $1 a month. Feel even more generous for $5 to receive early access to the podcast before it goes public. For a monthly donation of $10, receive a copy of the Novice Observer's Handbook. And for $35 a month, you receive producer credits on the podcast. You can find out more by going to www.patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, dom, slash, Observer's Notebook. And if you'd like to join the ALPO, membership begins at $22 a year. You can find out more at www.alpo-astronomy.org. And you can also find us on Facebook. Just search for ALPO Astronomy. And this podcast also has a Facebook page as well. Just search for Observer's Notebook. And if you enjoy what you hear in the podcast, please subscribe. That way you'll never miss any episodes. And now, episode 171, and we're talking to the most recent recipient of the Walter H. Haas Observer's Award, Tr- Trevor Berry. Hope you enjoy. I'd like to welcome everybody back to this edition of the Observer's Notebook podcast. And today we have a very special guest, uh, Trevor Barry. How are you doing, Trevor? Um, very good, Tim. Great. How are you? I'm I'm marvelous. And I really want to thank you for coming on the podcast, too. Oh, it's my pleasure. Now, before we get into talking about what you're doing in astronomy, just can you give everybody a little bit of background about yourself? Well... I tell my wife and young son, he's unfortunate to have old parents, that I'm a super fit elite athlete approaching 72. <laughs> um, I live in Broken Hill, uh, the remote outback of Australia, um, 2,000 kilometres west of Sydney. Oh. Uh, you can't go any further west of Sydney and still be in New South Wales. <laughs> uh, a native of Broken Hill. And I worked in the Broken Hill Mines. We have uh, mines that have uh, been in production over 100 years now uh, for 34 years. I started in the mines in 1969 as an apprentice fitter and machinist. And uh, while 10 years in, uh, did the electrical trade course from the ground up. Uh, So I was a dual tradesman. And uh, after 34 years, I finished up in well, March 2002. Uh, had sort of got into astronomy well, very casually. Mm-hmm. 
during my working time on the mine. Okay. Uh, but I sort of wondered it. That intrigued me. Why the stuff I looked at through my scope looked the way it did. So I uh, pulled on a postgraduate degree in astronomy. That was a bit of a thrill because, you know, I left school early to go and work on the mines. Mm-hmm. So I had uh, no tertiary background at all. You know, did uh, TAFE. My trade course was done at the local TAFE. So a uh, bit apprehensive, but uh, I knew some professionals who'd actually been out and visited my observatory, and uh, they were they were very supportive of getting into it, and I did and did all right. So, yeah, that's me. Okay, so you got into astronomy a little later in life, though, didn't you? Well, Tim, look, most people don't look up, and sadly, I was one of those, yeah. you know, and uh, so uh, in my department on the mine, um, the apprentices that work on our mines a very big concern it was a very big concern and the apprentices got very good uh training because they would rotate through all the different departments on the mine that did different types of uh, mechanical or electrical engineering you know like underground surface whatever mm-hmm. we even had our own power station you know, our own uh, engineering design office, they spend time even there. Well, uh, one of the apprentices that came through my department, uh, him and his dad had uh, built a telescope. Like, they'd even ground the primary mirror. Oh. It was an eight-inch Newtonian uh, reflector, and they built, they built a German equatorial mount out of pipe fittings. Oh, I, my. He, he asked me to go and have a look at it. Well, I had no interest in why would I want to look through a telescope? But he was persistent. And, uh, you know, our town's only very small. Mm -hmm. It was the middle of winter, and uh, my wife's mum lived the other side of Broken Hill, so that's a 10-minute drive. Okay. I I dropped her out at her mum's place. It got dark early, you know, middle of winter, so I went to have a look at this lad's scope, and it was on the back lawn behind his house. And, yeah, from an engineering viewpoint, it was actually quite impressive, you know, and I sort of wandered around and checked it out. And then he just pointed out this nondescript point of light. This is what we're going to look at. And I thought, oh, well, you know, this won't take long. So I looked and there was Saturn. Uh-oh. Ring system, Cassini division, I don't know, four or five moons, you know, spread out either side. I thought, ah, oh, can't be. This can't be right. <laughs> How can this possibly be? And uh, you know, uh, one thing led to another, and all these little patches of fuzz that are there every night, but no one sees them. You mm-hmm. know, and uh, they became uh, globular star clusters, open or galactic star clusters, emission nebulae. You know, like mm-hmm. amazing stuff. I picked the wife up two o'clock the next morning. I was in bother, so. It's something I had to get into. Uh-huh. You know, so it started me. So I built my first telescope and, you know, then this aperture synthesis, so how to build a bigger one. And this went on and on. And uh, we used to have a back lawn. And uh, I got into bother with the missus. I got a post hole digger and sunk three holes in her back lawn and three uh, two-litre ice cream 
plastic ice cream containers in there full <laughs> of concrete. And uh, I built a German equatorial mount on a pier and it had three legs and uh, I slotted lawnmower wheels into two of the legs so I could lift the third one and sort of wheel it from out of our underneath our back veranda. The telescope used to live on a bed in the house with a sheet over it. Okay. And and one day, fateful day, had all the counterweights on it, not the telescope, and I was wheeling it out from under the back veranda. And I lifted uh, the leg that I'm, you know, wheelbarrowing at along with too high. Newtonian physics took over. Oh, oh no. Launched me over the top into my gorgeous and adorable wife's rose garden. Oh, no. Let me tell you, the, the roses weren't damaged, but I was. <laughs> but, so this sort of led to an observatory. So of course. Single-story observatory, rotating dome. Um, they're designed and built uh, at a local technical college on uh, Wednesday nights. They had a night class, and I could go along and just use their equipment, their lathes, millers, whatever. Wow. And so I built various uh, equatorial mounts and built my own drives and used synchronous motors to to turn the drives and, you know, and then I had to go bigger again, you know, and, oh, the telescope kept getting bigger and I wanted a big one. And I sort of looked around and I saw Mead had a 16-inch Dobsonian telescope. Oh, my. I didn't want a Dobsonian telescope. No. So so I bought that, to, so I ended up with a 16-inch primary mirror, and I built a massive German equatorial mount. That That's very heavy, but mm-hmm. the cardboard tubes, I don't know if you've run into them, they're very thick, and there's a lot of weight just right. in the tube, you know? And, of course, then I wanted to go bigger again, so I went two-story. I went from a single-story observatory to a two-story observatory, um, got heaps of stuff downstairs, all my work, a lot of work on display, and uh, I designed and built my ultimate telescope, which is for what I eventually got into, which is planetary imaging. And uh, the tube is aluminium because aluminium uh, follows the ambient temperature, you know, so mm-hmm. steel tube will go below ambient and dew, and then you'll get tube currents. and. Right. Um, you know, I image at 2,000 power, so uh, the air that's in contact, uh, the boundary layer of air across the primary mirror has to be uh, at ambient. And so the mirror's got to be at ambient. Right. So I built the Peltier cooler, and uh, I run that for two hours before I image, and so I drive the temperature of the Pyrex down so I get a window of about two hours where it's near enough to ambient that I don't generate currents in that boundary layer of air. I don't get uh, tube currents because the tube is aluminium. You know, it's a Newtonian reflector, but every it's different. Every Newtonian reflector I'd previously seen have a had a push-pull cell to change the angulation of the secondary mirror. So to do that, that means uh, tightening or loosening uh, one of three screws or maybe two of the three screws to change the angulation of the secondary to collimate the secondary. Um, 
but that's no good. It's all right just using eyepieces, but at 2,000 power, that's a problem because you're instigating a turning moment. So you can flex uh, one, two, or maybe three, or if you've got a four-vein spider, those veins, you can put a flexing moment into that, ah. which at some point through the night might release, you know, so you lose your collimation. So my system uh, has a very large, heavy aluminium uh, ring outside the tube that sits on Teflon. Uh, and I use, I've got a three-vein uh, spider. They're three stainless steel machine uh, rulers, like engineering rulers, and they uh, pass through slits. Uh, my push-pull adjustment uh, shifts the entire vein huh. long, longitudinally, so there's no turning moment at all to release at okay. some I'm very pedantic. I can't help it. It's who I am. You know? <laughs> There's nothing perfect in this life, but, you know, it's a very good telescope. Wow. And you put glass in California, did the primary for me, and I had a rough cast, uh, so it's uh, 16, over 16 inches, 605 or 606 mil diameter. Wow. And it's rough cast f4.5, and... We have one master mirror maker that I know of in Australia. He lives in Sydney. And I left the mirror with him and he spent six months on it, uh, finishing it. Again, there's nothing perfect in this life. However, Jesus, a good curve. This is the Dobsonian uh, mirror that you bought? No, no, no. This is this is another mirror. This oh, is okay. I've moved on from that. Okay. This is my ultimate telescope. Okay. So uh secondary from Antares Optics, also in California. And I specified, uh, so that's the difference between the highest peak and the lowest trough is one thirtieth of one wavelength of light. Uh, that's military spec for that right. surface. So, you know, and then I live in a really fortunate position, but we're far inland. It's very flat. So uh, the, we have laminar flow of the weather systems as they traverse our continent, you know, west to east. Uh, and there's no big snotty mountains or even large hills to delaminate that flow. And then uh, the high pressure systems that cross Australia very often pass directly over Broken Hill, which pushes the jet north and south, giving me really stable air over the top. And then also being so far inland, generally uh, we have very low relative humidity you know, so very low levels of water vapor in the atmosphere, you know, which is also mm -hmm. big help. And, uh, yeah, so that's sort of me. Wow. So you, you've built all of your telescopes pretty much then, right? From, from the, the ground up. Designed and built the observatory. Designed and built the mount that the telescope swings on. Designed and built the telescope. I used... A very old, a friend of mine put me onto a ray trace program called Newt. It's a very old program. Mm. And I use that to design the telescope. I've never had an eyepiece in it. It's designed to be a lens for my imaging train. Okay. Uh, the position is fully baffled. The position of the baffles is determined by the software program. Um, 
you know, based on the wavelength of light, you know, so I don't get scatter. Um, I mean, yeah, so I'm very, as I said, I'm a very pedantic person. <laughs> very good. Now, let's go back to your first one, the first telescope you bought. What was that? Ah, well, that was a 10-inch Newtonian reflector. And uh, for that one, I uh, got onto uh, a company that built um, uh, like drainage pipe, stormwater pipe, plastic, PVC. And so I got a a, a length, a uh, 12-inch diameter. Um, I'll say, what, about six-foot-long length of PVC stormwater pipe. Uh, yeah, and I uh, put a, my primary in that. And, uh, you know, this was way before I ever got into imaging. This was just, you know, like yeah, looking visual. through the sky. Um, yeah, just introducing myself to got a decent atlas, yeah, Sky mm-hmm. Atlas 2000. Um, yeah, and just work my way star hopping. Actually, that's the way to go. Yes. But, you know, people that have computer-driven mm-hmm. scopes, I, they miss out on so much. Yep. You know, by star hopping from the, the current object that you're looking at, that's just amazing the stuff that you come across while yeah. star hopping to the next thing that you thought you wanted to look at. That's a good point. The thing you thought you wanted to look at yeah, until you exactly. find something along the way. That's a good exactly. point. Yeah. Do you think working in the mines helped your night vision at all? Well, working in the mines, if I hadn't worked in the mines, I couldn't have done. Uh, what I've done with astronomy, like we, we're very remote, mm-hmm. and uh, so I do mechanical maintenance later, electrical maintenance, okay. and uh, often equipment would break down, and uh, it would have to be fixed, mm-hmm. and we wouldn't necessarily have the correct part, and so you'd have to think outside the square to come up with a solution to get that equipment online and running. Mm-hmm. You know, so. So I think it taught me to be very resourceful and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and that sort of helps, uh, you know, like um, among other things now, I play lawn bowls and I'm the greenkeeper at our local bowling club. My adorable okay. wife is the secretary treasurer. And I was bored out of my brain doing really mundane tasks, walking up and down behind various mowers and other implements. I have some of my best ideas of how to improve my capture regime, how to improve my processing regime. Yeah, I've got a very well-equipped uh, workshop, nice lathe, mm-hmm. post drill, grinders, what have you. Um, so if I hadn't worked on the mine, that gave me the skill to actually uh, build yeah. a dome, you know, petals, yeah. like how to calculate the the curve on the sides of the pedals, how to generate that to come up with something that actually looks like an observatory and works. And then uh, other things like we're in the middle of nowhere, mm-hmm. but believe it or not, we did have a sailing club, which we were in a long, long, long time ago. Okay. And so I have uh, the trapeze wire from one of my catamarans, uh, and that opens and shuts the slot of my dome. <laughs> no, and then I've got uh, an old, I don't know if you're familiar with old ringer, the old ringer washing machines. Okay. The chugga chug. Well, I've got the motor 
out of an old ringer washing machine, and that rotates my dome. And when I fire it up, it just sounds like it too. You know, you got to be there. Like, I love it. Oh, that's wild. That's absolutely wild. So you're pretty resourceful. <laughs> well, you have to be. Yeah. You just, you know, if you've got to come up with solutions and uh, if there's, there's no such thing, there's nothing that can't be done. You mm-hmm. just have to sit down and think about it. You know, right. there's always a way to overcome whatever problem you might come up with, you know, and um, God, once when I'd done uh, my degree and uh, sort of uh, I've always been interested in Saturn after that being the first thing that I saw through a scope and I found my first electrical storm on Saturn, oh, mm-hmm. God, 2005, and uh, uh, I knew a few professionals then mm-hmm. here in Australia and I contacted them and they pointed me to uh, – the Cassini Imaging Team. Mm-hmm. I found their the Cyclops website. Uh, there was a little uh, dude out there for public comment. Now, but I didn't want public comment. I thought, you know, if they don't know that this new storm, this storm, I'd never seen anything like it before, was there. Then they needed to know. Mm-hmm. I kept pestering people and and end up getting on to Dan Green at Harvard. Okay, but when I was doing my degree, I did a variable star project, and uh, that's where I became acquainted with Dan Green with okay. uh, the CBAT bulletins, some of which are about variable stars. And uh, I contacted Dan, and there was heaps of toing and froing. Was I a deal? Did I have a clue as to what I was on about? Well, he took it upon himself to contact uh, Georg Fischer, then at the University of Iowa, who was on the uh, Cassini RPWS team, so radio and plasma wave science. So on the Cassini spacecraft, there are three whip antennae. Now, I got to go to JPL. That's another story. But anyway, and they've got a one-third scale model, and there are the three whip antennae. So... Uh, his data, you know, if you have a radio turned on uh, in your house and there's an electrical storm near you, whenever there's a, a burst of lightning, you hear static. Mm-hmm. But that's all the data Georg Fisher is getting with his RPWS instrument. So so he doesn't uh, know where it's coming from. He just he's knows. No, he doesn't even know what hemisphere it's coming from. So knowing the velocity of the spacecraft and the rotation rate of the planet, uh, he could make a guesstimate. So when the Cassini spacecraft came over the horizon relative to where there was a SEDS, he called it SEDS, Saturn Electrostatic Discharge, mm-hmm. not burst, um, it would stop when the spacecraft went over the other horizon. And so he could make a guesstimate for the midpoint, so mm-hmm. an approximate longitude, no clue what hemisphere this was in. So this is happening deep within the atmosphere. So we've got three cloud layers. at Saturn, pretty much all the same as Jupiter. Upper cloud layer, ammonia, ice particles, intermediate cloud layer, ammonia, hydrosulfide, ice particles, a lower cloud layer, uh, water ice crystals. On Saturn, that's to a depth of about 200 kilometres. So from time to time, Poorly understood heat source drives material from the water ice cloud layer into rapid vertical motion. Now, think about this. Ice particles, 200K deep within the atmosphere, they're just sitting there doing nothing, potential energy. 
But when they start surging upwards, they're rubbing against one another. So a kinetic energy uh, build up charge, discharge, certain electrostatic discharge. How cool is that? Mm-hmm. So... Uh, that material will continue to punch upwards, punch through the upper cloud layer. Now, this is different stuff. It's <laughs> deep within the atmosphere. So, Trev, images a white spot. How about that? Very accurately, I would measure the latitude and longitude, send that to Georg, and only then could he do his analysis on the propagation of the radio waves through the atmosphere. So the first time this happened, he got back to me and he said, look, we, we know this storm uh, has started. It's been going for three weeks. Uh, but because of the various uh, instrument packages on the spacecraft and their priorities, they just can't, he just can't have uh, Im- the imaging cameras used when y- your package mm-hmm. might be doing something with a mass spectrometer, you know. So he was totally reliant on ground-based data. And at that stage, Mark Delcroix in France, okay. Ralph Vandenberg in the Netherlands, mm-hmm. Chris Goh in the Philippines, and would I like to be part of the team? That's, qu- that's quite the team to join. Would I what? So from <laughs> that point on, whenever his RPWS instrument detected a burst of SEDS, he would send out an email to our group uh, with the challenge to hunt down the optical counterpart to his radio source. Well, I been did that for the rest of the life of the Cassini spacecraft. I supported it for over a decade. Um, Augustin sanchez Lavara. it's the longest uh, Pro-Am collaboration I have is with Augustin. Okay. His uh, PVOL database, actually the servers for the PVOL database live in the basement of his university in Bilboa in Spain. And I currently have uh, uh, 7,800 data sets and 75% of those are satin data. You know, so that's just what I do. And um, what can I say? That's uh, the great storm. So uh, how cool was that? So December about the 6th, 2010, Bill contacted our group. Uh, he had received a massive uh, amount, frequency of uh, RPWS discharges within within the atmosphere, previously unseen levels. So clearly wow. something was happening. So we were having uh, earthly stormy weather over Broken Hill. And it, so it took me about five days to actually get data, and it was absolute rubbish data. Mm. The data was so poor that it was even difficult to discern the Cassini division. But even though this was crap data, there was this bright, really bright, uh, more than a spot. Well, it was diffuse because it was rubbish data, but it was there and I could measure it. Now, previously, every electrical storm that I'd found to that point, um, like you really needed good seeing and good Mm. data to resolve it. That rubbish data could resolve this. Clearly, it was a totally different animal. Well, by mid-January 2011, it had dredged up so much material, which hit the local jet stream at that latitude. It was about 42 degrees north. The the, the uh, jet 
would distribute that material and by the middle of January 2011, it had totally encircled the planet. So oh much goodness. material had been dredged up and it looks stunning. It didn't matter if you weren't interested in astronomy at all to see this, the structure to it. It was just phenomenal. Well, in the turbulence behind the head of that storm, an anti-cyclone spun up and uh, I'm still tracking it. Oh it's the longest-lived anti-cyclone at Saturn other than this one at the North Pole, one at the South Pole, but other than those two which were discovered by the Voyager probes in 8081 when they swung by. Uh, that said, I haven't managed to image it yet, this apparition, but I, my last date on that is in November last year, yeah. uh, and it's fading. It's actually drifting south, which is a problem. When you look at the zonal wind profiles of Saturn, the peaks are really high and sharp-sided down to the next trough as you go from latitude to latitude. Well, uh, uh, where the latitude that it formed, the jet is strong. Now, this is spinning. It's a vortex, right? So it needs energy to, to keep that spin. Well, over the last, oh, I don't know, probably seven years it's been drifting south uh it's just maybe 0.2 or 0.3 of a degree a year but it's coming down the shoulder of that wind profile it's experiencing uh not as not the wind strength that it was and it's fading so um each year i get the hubble data um amy simon she works also with Augustine's team. He tells me that uh, I'm a valued member of his team and that my Saturn work is fundamental to his research, you know, and he's an old fart like me. I think I've got 18 months on him. He's, <laughs> he's the – I'm an excitable person and I can't help it, and he's the settling influence. You know, whenever I think <laughs> down something new on Saturn, Augustine, you know, calms me down and – this takes me to 2014. I found this really strange structure in the equatorial zone of Saturn. It had a bright component and a dark component, and it had shapes, sort of looked a bit like a letter S. Um, and I fired straight up to Augustine, and he said, well, uh, Trev, settle, you know, the... Uh, winds in the equatorial zone of Saturn are amongst the strongest in the solar system, approach the speed of sound. So although structure can form there, it's highly unlikely to be long-lived because it will be torn apart. So that's all right. So 2015, when Saturn swung out from solar conjunction, I found it again. Oh. And so I tracked it. So I tracked it for four, four weeks, uh, calculated the drift rate of the feature produced an ephemeris that predicted its position over the next couple of months. Well, Augustine, uh, his university, has access to Cala Alto Observatory in the Pyrenees. I think it's a two-metre scope. And so uh, off went one of Augustine's teams. Like his, Augustine is a tenured professor of physics, so job for life, head of applied physics and head of the planetary science group at his university in Bilboa. Okay. So, uh, well, they've, they've found it up close and personal, bigger telescope. So immediately, Augustine penned a proposal to NASA Goddard, who operate Hubble, 
mm-hmm. and they gave us three orbits of the Hubble Space Telescope, and uh, that led to a paper we published in Nature. I love that. So uh, I'm a co-author, uh, and all the authors are professors or PhDs, and I'm not. I'm Trev, the ex-mine worker from Broken Hill, and uh, but I got this lovely email from the, the editors of Nature and it's addressed, Dear Dr. Barry. I love that. <laughs> and, uh, and then also, uh, so they have the you didn't, title. You didn't, you didn't correct them, did you? No, obviously not. <laughs> I love that. I got, also got one from Icarus and geophysical research letters. So, wow. well, I'm, I'm a, 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 a graduate certificate of science in astronomy, so postgraduate. But that's it, you know, so definitely not a PhD. So, so yeah, and then... Uh, they have the affiliations of the authors. So, you know, there's the creme de la creme of universities that are into planetary science, Augustine's University, you know, Caltech, um, University of California, Berkeley. Mm. Uh, I have Broken Hill Observatory. I wow. love seeing my little Broken Hill Observatory listed as, I don't know, five times now in Nature, uh, six times in Icarus. Six times in geophysical research letters. So yeah, so gives me a bit of a buzz. Yeah, you are a prime example of when I talk to uh, groups about the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers. You know, a lot of it are people that have telescopes, but they don't do anything with them other than casual looking through them. And I always ask, "Would you like to do science through your telescope?" And they're like, "Oh yeah, oh how." And I talk about the different programs within the ALPO that you can do Saturn research that's used by professionals. You are a prime example of what can be done by an amateur because you consider yourself an amateur still. And it's, and that's, that's pretty wild. Well, regarding that, um, the, the hexagon, there's a he- perfect six sided hexagon at the North Pole of Saturn, surrounds the North Pole. Of Saturn, and it's uh, modelled as a Rosby wave, so a jet stream that lifts a vertical wave, and there's six of them, and they're straight-sided. An amazing thing, and uh, like that was seen by the Voyager probes mm-hmm. in eighty eighty one, and uh, for us on Earth with telescopes, uh, we never really got a look at that until. Uh, the end of 2009, the rings were edge on. And following that, the North Pole started the tilt, the relative tilt. I mean, it's inclined at 26 right. degrees to the to the plane of the solar system. But relative to our position, the angle changes depending on the position of its orbit relative to us. You know, so uh, the rings, the uh, rings started to dip and the North Pole started to tilt towards us. Uh, but initially, the first few years, so 2010, 11, and 12, there was very little contrast or colour difference between the hexagon and uh, then there's a ring of material that surrounds the hexagon. Uh, and so you, it was very difficult to define the vertices of the hexagon. However, when Saturn swung out from solar conjunction uh, early 2013, there was significant difference in contrast and colour between the hexagon and that surrounding uh, area. 
you know. So I started a project to very accurately measure from Earth the rotation rate of the hexagon. This is a big deal. Yeah. So the end, we have three rotation rates at Saturn, L1, System 1, System 2, System 3. So System uh, System 1 is the rotation rate, the cloud tops at the EZ, the equator. System 2, uh, the cloud tops across the rest of the planet. And System 3 is the internal uh, or magnetic rotation okay. rate of the planet. Now, that was uh, Voyager's had uh, oh, metal block. I'll get to that. They, they measured they measured it with, uh, oh, what do we call that, big long boom. To, so the the uh, magnetic field of the spacecraft is, is not seen and they measure the magnetic field of the, I can't think of the name of the, oh, I'm old. You'll have to forgive me. Anyway, so they, they, that came up with a figure and it's sort of, uh, 10 hours, 39 minutes, 22.400004 seconds. Now, there's broad agreement in professional circles that that's wrong, that the internal rotation rate is actually slower than that. Now, it's also interesting that the hexagon doesn't rotate in System 3. It rotates much slower. Hmm. So... Isn't that interesting? So, so it's also broadly accepted that the processes that form the hexagon are deeply rooted in the atmosphere. And so, I sort of said to my professor, "I'm only an amateur, so don't listen to me." But anyway, I came out with this idea, and I said, "Well, look, if the processes that form the hexagon are deeply rooted in the atmosphere, could it be? Could the the rotation rate of the hexagon actually?" be more of a reflection of the internal rotation rate of the planet. So anyway, uh, 3,115 Earth days later, I produced a result. You know, I measured so that hexagon, the planet's rotating anti-clockwise. Mm -hmm. Hexagon's drifting clockwise relative to the anti-clockwise rotation of the planet. It's rotating slower. So I said about... Uh, very accurately measuring that difference, you know. So I made many animations. I'd animate the data. But what I did when I created, I created uh, polar maps in Winjupos, but I always specified the same uh, L3 longitude at the left margin of the map. By doing that, if I made maps over however many years, it wouldn't matter if, the hexagon was rotating at the recognised internal rotation rate, the L3 rotation rate. It would The vertices would never move. They would always be in the same orientation. Well, over 3,115 Earth days, I measured a 30-degree uh, drift, clockwise drift. So I had, I had to rotate the hexagon uh, 3,115 Earth days after the first polar map, I had to rotate that 30 degrees anti-clockwise so that the vertices lined up perfectly when blinked, you know, do a blink animation, blink rapidly, mm -hmm. one hexagon was superimposed over the other. So I did. All, I started out doing this on a whiteboard and then it got very messy, so I came up with a spreadsheet and I embedded 
the pertinent calculations within particular cells of the spreadsheet. And uh, when I when I finished, I uh, I sent the spreadsheet to Augustine and I sent it to Julius at Alpo. Mm-hmm. And uh, we just published a paper that might have been in uh, geophysical research letters, and it was on a, a two vortices. Uh, cyclone anticyclone combination up near the hexagon funnily enough and uh, in the abstract that's the closest Augustine has ever come to uh, coming up with a relationship between the rotation rate of the hexagon and the internal rotation rate Mm. and he went as far as saying that the rotation rate of the hexagon might well have a connection with the internal rotation rate, but not saying what the rotation rate was. Anyway, uh, Augustine, uh, Julius, he was was impressed also with the, the spreadsheet, and he asked me if I'd actually produce a paper for possible uh, for a publication in your Alpo journal. And so I do nothing in half measures, so. I approached it as I would one of my university papers, uh, full in-text referencing and full reference list to follow. And uh, I sent it to Augustine because I very much value Augustine's Mm -hmm. opinion. And I didn't want to make a fool of myself. And, you know, so Augustine looked at it and he said, no, look, that's he thought it was a very good paper. And so I submitted it. And it was published last year. I think it was about June in the mm-hmm. Alpo Journal. If anyone's interested, uh, yeah. And it's on Trev from Broken Hills' take on the differential rotation of the hexagon relative to the accepted internal rotation rate of the planet. Yeah. Wow! So you That's can do science, you know. So what I'm saying to other people, we have other people there, other amateurs, that you know think about what you do. And it is possible. Uh, I'm really passionate about this because I only saw the hexagon was only visible to me and other mortals on Earth really from early 2013, and now it's not because now we're heading back towards the rings being edge on again. And now uh, the South Pole is, is, is tilted to the away from us to the point where, you know, cannot define the vertices of the hexagon and so uh the the uh 2017 was the the uh north summer solstice mm-hmm. uh, 2007 yeah so 30 years from that it's going to be the next north summer solstice well you know 30 years from there will i still have my marbles will i still <laughs> be on the planet i may never see the hexagon again in my life Oh, so I've been very, very passionate right. about doing something from, you know, an amateur's perspective to mm-hmm. contribute to that, you know. And then I know the professional body here in Australia last year, uh, our pro- peak professional body is the Astronomical Society of Australia. Mm-hmm. And every two years they award the Berenice and Arthur Page Medal. And it's for work by an amateur that has advanced the field of astronomy. And uh, they saw fit to award that to me last year. And it was well very, very uh, humbling. I mean, to get that sort of recognition. And uh, in the citation, uh, the president 
as a professor of physics at Monash University in Melbourne. And uh, in the citation, he talked about uh, my general work in planetary science, but in particular, the work that I'd done on the differential rotation of the hexagon at Saturn. He was taken with the the technique that I'd come up with, Mm -hmm. not having a gravitometer or a spacecraft (laughs) to even attempt to do that from Earth uh, with a meaningful result. Oh, so when I actually sent my uh, paper to Augustine before it was, I sent it to Julius, he said, look, Trev, uh, there are errors of measurement in everything. You know, there is no perfection. So even the measurements from the Voyager data that we use for the internal rotation rate, there would be errors of measurement to mm-hmm. consider. Mm-hmm. So I then went back to my spreadsheet and I calculated the difference now, I, I measured a difference of 30 degrees over that time period. So I then calculated the difference and error by me in my estimation of the rotation of two degrees, not 30. So 32, 28 to 32, and that error, uh, so my measurement is, is to within six decimal points of one second of the rotation rate of the hexagon, and it's plus or minus, uh, I can't quote it off the top of my head, but it's 0.03 something, and I took that out to six decimal places too. So, For ground-based observing to be that accurate, that's phenomenal. That's just, you don't, you don't see that. You know, that's amazing that you could do that. Wow. Well, there you go. It's just something people can do. You know, you can do well, that. <laughs> okay, with perfect scene and uh, perfect instrument, and yeah, that's amazing. That's amazing. So you mentioned the ALPO. How did you get involved with the ALPO originally? Oh, a long time ago. Yeah. So, uh, so lots of things, serendipitous things, have happened to me in my astronomy. Mm-hmm. You know, so uh, I'd, uh, I'd uh, when I found my first electrical storm and became involved with Georg Fischer and the Cassini mission, Cassini IPWS team, um, I'd started uh, posting on uh, I'd post on cloudy nights and here in Australia on ice in space is our equivalent and uh, another Australian amateur, very good, very sort of genius actually, uh, an IT professional and he's helped me in that respect considerably. But I didn't know he existed. And, you know, and I came aware aware of him. And he said, look, uh, I then put him in touch with Georg Fischer, and he also became part of our little team. We yeah. were He was a 1,000 kilometres at that stage. He was a 1,000 kilometres east of me. So that gave then two widely separated observing points in Australia, you know, and he suggested, he pointed me to, Augustine and the PVOL database, the BAA and ALPO. Okay. And so from that point, all my data uh, went to the BAA. I went to ALPO Japan for a while, but then I had problems with them. They wanted everything south up 
and oh. uh, all the papers that are published, it, they don't North publish. Up. It's North Up. So right. that's just how I produce it. Yeah. Anyway, and, so and the yeah, ALPO. Japan ALPO is not affiliated with the ALPO in any way either. No, they, they didn't want my data. I couldn't believe that. That's They've numerous times since then, oh, a couple of years ago, they changed their stance on South Up. And so I started sending them data again. I send a lot of data. I just don't take happy snaps. If I image, right. I have good seeing. But I don't, the sort of seeing we get out here, it's either good or it's not. If it's mm-hmm. good, it's not suddenly bad. Mostly it's good all night. So I'll have hours of data. And uh, I would usually go uh, do you know, the nine minutes infrared and RGB, there's 18 minutes, uh, nine minutes infrared, and then nine minutes methane CH4, uh, and then I need about a five-minute gap to, to, to before I go to my next infrared to keep the 20-minute centres between uh, infrared data sets. Like that's where, most from my experience, is that infrared the really fine detail that I'm interested in is best seen mostly in infrared. So I've got 685 nanometer IR. That's currently what I use, but previously okay. I've used 742 nanometer IR, 607 nanometer IR, you know, 889 nanometer methane. That's a 20 nanometer pass centered on 889 nanometers. And very occasionally I do Venus and I've got UV, UV. Uh, for that, but hmm. I forgot what you asked me. I'm sorry. No, just w- w- when you got involved with the ALPO, <laughs> that's when I got involved with the ALPO. Yes. Yeah, so okay. Right, right. Initially, once I once I started my work with Cassini, got fair dinkum. Mm-hmm. I became a fair dinkum observer, not just a casual observer, but right. you know, struck a chord with me was something that I wanted to contribute all my life to matter. That's silly, isn't it? I suppose, but no, anyway, not at all, not at all. Wow! I, I just imagine if you wouldn't have looked at your friend's telescope many years ago at Saturn, you know, because that probably affected this interest that you have directly. Well, look, um, when, when I was doing my degree, uh, the best way to learn a subject is to teach a subject. So uh, we've got a local community college, and so I started an astronomy class. Oh. I'll give presentations on the work that I was currently doing with my degree. If someone asked me a question that I couldn't answer, trust me, the following week when they turned up, I'd give them the answer in triplicate. (laughs) And then uh, a a private school in Sydney, uh, Methodist Ladies College in Burwood in Sydney, they started bringing their year nine kids to Broken Hill. They'd stay for a couple of weeks and somehow or other their headmaster was aware of me and asked me if I'd go and um, give them a general presentation on astronomy, which I would do. Uh, take a laser and walk them through the night sky with the mm-hmm. laser and, you know, and there'd be normally a group of maybe 40 kids and not many people are interested in astronomy. Well, one of the uh, one of the uh, electives they could do while they were in Broken Hill was astronomy. So the kids that were interested in astronomy would get bussed into my observatory. You know, it'd probably only be four or five, but I'd put a spectroscope 
on my telescope, which I had back then, mm-hmm. and I'd drop it on a red giant, and I'd tell them the name of the red giant, how far away it was. I had a laminated periodic table uh, with magnets holding that to the inside skin of the dome, you know, so so I dropped the laser on it. Tell them, you know, it's not just a point of light. It's got a name. This is how far away it is. Look here. And they'd look in the telescope, not see the star, but see the light from the star drawn out into a band with uh, the emission lines of where whatever element was there. And then they could look at my sample periodic table that I had stuck to the dome. You know, it was real science. You yeah. know, and I got such a buzz out of that. Yeah. Teaching kids. That that is a lot of fun. That's pretty cool. It is, yeah. So yeah, that's the thing. Um, I used to well with my astronomy group. I went out of my way for many years. I used to have a visitors book in my observatory. I've got so far beyond the ability to do that that my current telescope. There's so many cables hanging off of it. You now there's the cable. It's got a, a JMI uh, cable remote focus it. Focuser, so there's that comes off at a, a double decker uh, computer hutch, computer in the top deck. I pulled a eight by fifty finoscope to pieces, machined adapters to take uh, a CCD camera, CCD camera, which gives me a low power wide field view of the night sky. That's aligned with the optics of the telescope. Okay. Uh, you know, my main imaging system now, like a uh, exactal uh, electronic filter wheel uh, loaded with all of those filters, um, a Grasshopper 3 camera, um, that's everything that I've got in there gives me, extends the focal length such that I get 2,000 power. You know, so I wouldn't, oh, and then there's all the cables hanging off the, uh, Peltier cooler, <laughs> everything comes back, you know, and it's just not a telescope anymore that you can just swing around the night sky. Right. Like that, a, uh, you know, I, I can follow the path of the planets across the sky. You know, that's what it's, that's, that's what, what it does. That's what it's built for. That's what it's built for, and that's what it does. Yeah. Yeah. So your your current telescope, what is, I don't think you really talked about what it is. Well, it's a, uh, 406, I think, millimeter, 16 inch okay. primary. That's from Newport Glass, okay. California. It's the aluminium okay. Okay. tube. Okay, that's the one. Okay. The, the totally different front end, not a typical Newtonian front end with the push pull. You know, like my, my system for adjusting the angulation of the primary cannot untwist or. Right whatever, through the night, you know, so, yeah. Okay, so what are your future plans? Continue. Oh, well, well, I've I've lost, clearly I've lost the hexagon. Um, I'd love one more time to get uh, the the, uh, long-lived anticyclone vortex. You know, a couple of nights I've had good seeing, but probably closer to opposition, so August, Hopefully I'll get uh, good seeing okay. and and maybe I'll crack one more time uh, when that we actually when we do lose it because I've tracked it for so long and all that data I have in spreadsheets with drift charts 
uh, and Augustine's team will use that and we'll publish a paper on the longest-lived vortex seen at Saturn. Fantastic. Any equipment upgrades you're looking at, or are you pretty much set with what you got? Ah, well, my good friend, Anthony Wesley, I told you about, who mm-hmm. I fell upon, he's a, a whiz kid, a computer whiz kid, IT professional, and he kept telling me, he can, you know, it takes me a long time to process my data. So a night of capturing data, um, you know, so that camera is capable of eight or 16 bit data. Uh, I capture eight bit data, Saturn, I do it uh, 72 frames a second, you know, so that's a lot of data. But, so yeah. I've got to dump that onto an external drive. Uh, well, I was, I was using, um, a two terabyte external Seagate drive, and then I have to process off of that, and then I dump it onto an archive drive, a five terabyte archive drive, and it would take me maybe a week and a half to process a night's data. And uh, my mate Anthony, he kept complaining about my steam-driven computer. All my gear <laughs> is old, you know. All my gear is old gear, uh, but my fastest computer. My newest computer, which isn't new at all, but anyway, this one I'm using with you here now. Okay. Uh, he pointed out this thing, a StarTech, a StarTech SATA hard drive dock, and it's a really interesting contraption. And it, this has got USB 3.0, two U, USB 3.0 ports. Uh, and if I use a solid-state external drive, there's still a bottleneck. And it's not fast to process, and which takes hours and hours and hours to process. Well, with this SATA hard drive dock and uh, a solid state drive, but a bare solid state drive. So I'm not, so I'm using a two terabyte Samsung bare solid state drive. So there's not a cable coming off of it. Okay. The end is open and the copper contacts are visible. Well, the dock has a slot in the top of it that opens and you push the solid-state drive, the bare contacts, down into it. Oh, my. The uh, electronics inside there that do magic, and like I use auto stacker, that's, you know, that's the longest thing, the stacking of the data, and where it was taking me... Uh, Oh, better than five minutes to to uh, stack one ninety second uh, at seventy two frames a second run. You know, if it's good data, I'd stack. You know, eighty percent of the frames. You know, if it's rubbish data, I'd stack well fifty percent. I'd never stack less than fifty percent, but uh, it's better than halved that time. So it's gone from five minutes to uh, pretty much, well, two minutes smack on. So more than halved the time that it takes to stack uh, a 90-second run at 72 frames a second. And that's a big help to me. Yeah. And and, and it's not an expensive bit of kit. You know, I think in Aussie dollars, uh, this dock, was uh, what about one hundred and thirty dollars Australian? Okay. 
you know, and I think the uh, bare solid state drive to slip into it, um, that'd be a two terabyte. Like, uh, yeah, because I, I need to cover the situations where something out of the blue happens to me and I don't get to that data before the next data run. Mm-hmm. Like, often, well, we get. If I get three or four successive nights of good seeing, other than it's impossible to talk to me, I just I'm in a daze, you know, lack of sleep. Uh, I'm fine when I'm down there. I fire right up as soon as I see good data coming in. You know, I'm I'm a buzz, but okay. I haven't got to the previous night's data. There needs to be room on that drive. Okay, take another lot, you know. So yeah, yeah. So how often do you go out? Just whenever it's clear. Uh, not, no, I spend my life looking at computer models for uh, the jet strain. Okay. Uh, so uh, the GFS 200 millibar isotax, I, I, uh, they, they're a very good indication. Skippy Sky, I look at Skippy Sky, not, not the Skippy Sky prediction for seeing, but I look at Skippy Sky prediction for the jet stream. Okay. You know, more so. And uh, the position of the high pressure systems. You know, if we have a high pressure system over the top, I haven't had bad scene. Okay. You know? And then, and then I use my eyes. So I'm outdoors a lot, working at the bowling club, mm-hmm. and the uh, jets that come over from Melbourne going to Japan, or from Sydney going to Perth. Uh, if there's no vapor trail at all, then look. There's just no water vapor up there. Or if ah. there is a little vapor trail and the vapor trail isn't dispersed, you know, because huh. of wind shear, that also could be good. I have never thought of that. That's Use pretty- your eyes. Look at the sky. Also, uh, I've had heaps of um, TV crews come out and do stories on what I do. Mm-hmm. And Almost always, the cameramen always make the point as to how blue the sky is out here. We're a long way from anywhere, Tim. You know, like pollution, other than the occasional dust storm in the summer, and the sky goes red, but, I mean, mostly, mostly, uh, you know, there's just, we don't have atmospheric pollution. You know, and the sky is a really deep blue. It's some days more than others, and it's really noticeable. It's really noticeable, like the clarity of the sky. Huh. Yes, it's just fortunate to to live here and be interested in what I am. That's fascinating. It really is. Well, do you have anything else you'd like to share with our listeners? Oh, well, what, can, what else? Um, oh, the, the keks. So when I did my degree, at Swinburne, uh, my final unit, uh, my unit instructor was Professor Duncan Forbes. And uh, actually, it was on the distance to our galactic centre. He deducted one mark. That's the highest mark that I got at, at uni, you know. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, so what? So uh, 12 months after graduating, uh, I found a storm and I got heaps of publicity, heaps of press internationally and here in Australia, NASA put out a media release naming Mark Delcra, Ralph Vandenberg, Crisco, and Trev the Mineworker 
Uh, <laughs> Trevor Murdoch. Trevor Murdoch for their support of the Cassini mission, you know. Anyway, um, The Age, which is a major metropolitan newspaper in Melbourne where my university is, they sent a journalist and a photographer to Broken Hill and they did a full-page story on, on that. Uh, and before it went to press, the journalist contacted me said trev couple of questions for a little cv top right hand corner one of which did i have any unfulfilled ambitions and i said "Spruth, you know wouldn't it be great to go and observe with the kecks you know at the time uh the largest uh optical telescopes on the planet well duncan contacted me and he said trev like uh my university has a supercomputer Right, so that I was with astrophysics and supercomputing, and they have an astronomy uh, section which uh, Gus, uh, which Duncan is part of. So the Kecks are operated by Caltech. Mm-hmm. They give Swinburne. It's the only Australian university with a time allocation on the Kecks. They give them twenty nights, and the oh. spin-off is Caltech get to crunch data on Swinburne's supercomputer. Well, Duncan contacted me and he said. He was taking two PhD candidates to Hawaii. They had two nights on Keck 2. Would I like to go? So <laughs> I, I had to pay my way. Uh-huh. But I, I went with a professional research team. Wow. And uh, so, we, you know, we drove to the summit. We drove in four-wheel drive, diesel four-wheel drives, like the waiver mm-hmm. I had assigned from Caltech to mm-hmm. get access to the – to the kecks, everything I could die from cerebral edema, you know, yeah, what yeah. have you. And uh, all the, the information they sent, you know, uh, as a matter of course, they people dosed on uh, high concentration aspirin to thin their blood mm-hmm. to make uh, less likely altitude headaches, you know, what have right. you. And uh, we stopped at the Onizuka Center for International Astronomy, which is halfway up the mountain. There's a barracks there. And uh, the observatories that don't have remote uh, access, uh, the operators, you know, if they're whatever, they may have a week on, week off. Well, instead of going 14,000 feet to sea level, you know, a day, Mm -hmm. they go 14,000 feet down to seven, the Onizuka Centre, that barracks, they'd stay there for the time that they were on, you know. So we stopped there for two hours to acclimatize on top two uh 250 milligram aspirin and away we went drove through the cumulus cloud layer absolutely amazing oh, wow. experience you know up, up the top such a a alien environment you know ochre red cindercones gray fractured lava and you're above the cumulus cloud layer you know can't do anything quickly no so Oh, well, it didn't really. I was just ablaze to be there, honestly. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but they they took us in and sat us down and went through all the symptoms, any of which, if we felt, we had to tell them, and they whistle up a chopper to get us down to lower attitude. And everyone with a thinking job had an oxygen bottle on a leather belt behind them, dosing tubes into their noses. Well. Uh, oh, and the operators of Keck 2, they even slewed Keck 2 over far enough so that I could take a photo of my reflection in the largest primary mirror on Earth. Oh, oh how fuzzy. freaking cool. Fuzzy. So, 
So, but then we had our two nights. Um, the CAC headquarters is at Waimea. See, uh, that's only 3,000 feet, mm-hmm. you know. So that's where we observe from, the CAC remote control rooms. CAC 1, CAC 2, they're back-to-back. So we were in, you know, summer wear, and we had two operators at the summit, and they had to eyeball one another every 40 minutes to make sure they were still alive. And uh, our second night, Duncan took me through to CAC 1 control room and introduced me to... Uh, Chuck Stidell, a Caltech astronomer, and it was his first of two nights. And let me say, in, I'm only an amateur, you know, I know nothing, but uh, I enjoy what I do. Mm-hmm. And uh, every time I've met a professional, they've never looked down at me or been condescending. And like he gave me two hours of his time and explained to me uh, what he was into, which was. Uh, he was using a background quasar to and a, and a spectrometer to detect intermediate uh, clouds of hydrogen. You know, it was thought there was nothing between the clusters of galaxies, but but there is. There's these odd clouds of hydrogen out there. They're doing nothing, but uh, if he lines one up with a a high energy source, i.e., a quasar, then he can detect. Uh, absorption lines, emission lines from that intermediate hydrogen, and they call them Lyman alpha clouds, and where there's a lot of them in that particular plane, they're called Lyman alpha forests, and that was interesting. So the next day, bear in mind, I've just had two all-nighters, and I'm pretty foggy, so I've hit the deck at midday, Across the road, pretty much well from Keck HQ, is a Starbucks. So I staggered into Starbucks, knowing no one in Hawaii for a coffee. And who should come in? Chuck Stidell. Got a coffee, come and sat with me. And I'm oh. pressed upon him what it meant to me from my background mm-hmm. there at the pointy end of optical astronomy on planet Earth. And he turned to me and he said, Trev, uh, in his opinion, amateurs also had a contribution to make to astronomy and what was I doing that night, my last night in Hawaii, and he invited me to put it in with him. So I got three nights on the Oh, Keck. my God, so, Trevor. So I took my hire car to the car park of Keck HQ, and I had to leave from there to catch my plane from Kona back to Oahu to get our connecting flight back to Australia the next morning, you know. So heaps of things have happened to me to project me and along this path, you know. It's just wow. crazy. That's that's an amazing experience. My goodness. Wow. I'm envious. <laughs> it's wild. That's great. Well, I really want to thank you for coming on the podcast today. I really appreciate your time, and I wish you all the best. No worries. Thanks very much, Tim. All right. Okay, I just want to talk a minute about uh, the ALPO has an annual conference every year, and it's going to happen in a few weeks. And part of that is an awards ceremony. Uh, And I've been lucky enough to be the chairman of the Walter Haas Observers Award for many years. The Walter Haas Observers Award is bestowed annually to the Amateur Astronomer for Excellence in Observational Solar System Astronomy, 
This award is named for our founder and the original executive director, and it was established in 1985. The selection of this award is conducted by a, a committee convened by myself. Trevor, congratulations. You are the 2023 winner of the Walter no, H. Haas Observer's Award. Ah, Tim. Tim, I'm overcome. There you go. And oh, it says Tim? Walter H. Oss Observer's Award, Trevor Berry, in recognition for your many years of interest in and contributions to observational planetary astronomy, especially Saturn. Uh, Julius had us put that in there, <laughs> including visual and imaging, as well as professional amateur co co uh, collaborations. The ALPO recognizes and values your expertise and commends you for your dedication to our organization. Oh, look, thanks so much, Tim. That's just an amazing honor, an amazing honor, Tim. Thank well, you very much. It's well-deserved. And the, the award consists of this plaque. And I know you're not currently a member of the ALPO, but you also got a complimentary two-year membership to the ALPO. Oh, that would be good. So, and I just want to let you know the other committee members were myself, uh, Richard Schmoody, Ken Pachetli, Randy Tatum, Julius Benton, Clyde Foster, and Matt Will. Uh, and look, and I, I've done this award for a number of years. And I have to tell you, for the last five years, your name has been in the top three every single year. And I'm like, I was so thankful that you overwhelmingly were voted in this year. So congratulations, sir. Oh, look, that's just amazing. Absolutely amazing. God, who would have thought? I, well, it's well-deserved. That's all I know. <laughs> yeah, now look. That's it's not often I'm stumped for words, Tim. Well, that's good. That's good. I'm, I'm glad. And um, we will get this in the mail to you. And hopefully, if you can attend the conference, it's going to be online. So I don't oh. know. If, so if the time zones work, you know, but um, I've recorded this. So we're going to be playing this at the, the evening of the banquet, too, to show the presentation of the award. So, again, congratulations, sir. Oh, thank you so much, Tim. Thank All you right. so much. All right. Well, again, it's been great chatting with you, Trevor. Thanks, Tim. All right. You have a good night or good day. <laughs> good day, yeah. Well, that'll do it for this episode of the Observer's Notebook Podcast. Again, I want to thank Trevor Berry for coming on and be, as our guest today, and I hope you all enjoyed me presenting him with the Walter H. Haas Observer's Award for 2023. We upload new episodes of the Observer's Notebook on the 1st and 15th of every month. You can subscribe to us on iTunes. If you do, please rate and review us. I really appreciate it. You can also listen to us on Apple Radio, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, Spreaker, Google Play, Stitcher, Amazon Echo, Spotify, and also this podcast is available on our YouTube channel. You can help support the podcast by donating to it via Patreon by giving up to $35 a month, where you will receive one year's membership to the Alpo and producer credits on the podcast. With that, I want to thank the producers of this podcast, Steve Seedentop and Michael Moyer, for their generous support of the Observer's Notebook. The link for Patreon as well as the link for the ALPO is in the show notes. If you'd like to get a hold of me, my email address is cometman at cometman.net or on Twitter at, at observersnbpod. And until next time, 
My hope is you always have clear and steady skies. Thanks for listening. <laughs>